This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under the microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil discuss Bill Barr and the tactics deployed by the federal government in Portland, the deteriorating relationship between the United States and China, and why the president retweeted a video of a doctor who has previously claimed that fibroid and cysts are caused by having sex with demons in dreams, and that alien DNA is being used in medical treatment. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker. I'm a professor of political science at King State College, and I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's a professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill. Hey, Phil. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm still quarantined. This is, you know, this is the life we were talking before air that we're getting having these conversations about going back to school, whether we're going back, whether our kids are going back. It really feels like a surreal moment. Nobody knows, Bill. No, I, I know. It's all going to change I, on the in an instant. And everybody wants to make a good decision and figure out what the right decision is. And it's just it's so difficult to do yeah. so. No. So before we jump into the uh, the meat of the of the material today, just a quick uh, reminder that we do have a website, thepoliticslab.com. You can go there and listen to old episodes. You can, uh, on each of the episode pages, we have links to relevant articles. Um, follow us on Facebook, The Politics Lab. Follow us on Twitter, Politics Lab Pod. Um, and at both of those places, we'll keep you updated on new episodes, other announcements that come out. Um like us, rate us on, on, you know, Apple podcasts and, and Spotify and all of that. Anything I'm forgetting, Bill? No, that's good. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a new podcast. Many of you listening to us on our previous podcast. And so we're trying to build a good listenership. So uh, anything you guys, because listeners can do to share, tell your friends, uh, you know, any of the social media or the iTunes really makes a big difference for us and helps get the word out. And we would really appreciate that. Should we jump in? Let's do it. All right. So we're going to begin today today with the protests in Portland and the Trump administration's response. As listeners know, there have been ongoing Black Lives Matter protests across the country since May when George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis. But these protests took a turn a few weeks ago when the Trump administration decided to send unmarked and unidentified federal officers to Portland to combat the quote unquote violence there. Critics point out that the violence largely consists of graffiti and property damage, um, and that federal officers are there largely against the desires of local and state officials. The Trump administration has justified this use of force by citing the power of the Department of Homeland Security to protect federal buildings. The Trump administration has deployed over 100 federal agents to Portland, and these agents have used highly confrontational tactics, including tear gas and flashbangs and pepper spray. They've, They've arrested a large number of people. President Trump has made clear that he also plans to extend this tactic to other American cities, um, including Chicago, Bill. I heard he's sending them to your street specifically. So I, th- I think they're right out behind the backyard now. <laughs> they're listening in as we do I'm this. Being, I'm being very, very careful. <laughs> Trump has repeatedly threatened to use troops to enforce, use federal troops to enforce laws if local, local governments wouldn't. And there's some belief on the right that this will help Trump win back voters, particularly in the suburbs, although polls show that this strategy is not popular. In fact, the citizens of Portland have responded with a wall of moms, and there were also dads with leaf blowers and stuff out there to defend protesters from federal agents. Um, and in fact, the wall of moms and Black Lives Matter have filed suit against the Trump administration for violating their First Amendment rights to free speech and assembly. Bill, there is so much here to talk about. I haven't even touched on Bill Barr's testimony on Tuesday, yesterday, in which he claimed that he had a duty to protect the courthouse in Portland from people throwing fireworks. That's a strange claim. Um, in which Jerry Nadler, the Democratic chair of the House Judiciary Committee, told Barr he should be ashamed for, quote, projecting fear and violence nationwide in pursuit of obvious political objectives. Those are strong words. Shame. <laughs> we haven't talked to, we, I haven't even touched on the fact that Republicans find themselves defending the use of federal power against state and local governments, a stance that would have been inconceivable just a few years ago. We can talk about the question of whether protesters should be violent or nonviolent in their response. That's so much. Where, where do you want to start, Bill? Is there any way we can possibly cover all of this? Um, I, I think we should try. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, maybe we could step back and take a big picture look at this at what's really going on. And to do so, let's remove Trump for the moment and think about if you know five years ago you'd heard about the federal government bringing in troops on you know without labels, without insignia, into a major city, you know, using violence against the public. I think we would all be up in arms and say this is this would never happen. Um, and it feels like the U.S. government is now using paramilitary forces 
against the American people. And I understand Bill Barr really wants to defend that federal building. And this feels like that's, you know, it's a it's his final stand. But I just think the the optics of it are terrible. Um, I, you know, we can get into the political dynamics. I, you know, I, I wonder whether this might work to Trump's political advantage. But before we even get there, just this idea that now we have a paramilitary force on the streets in Portland, it feels very much like uh, what uh, Putin did in Russia with his little green men. There was all sorts of controversy about that, where Russia was putting soldiers into Ukraine without any insignia and saying, no, 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 they're not there. I mean, just the, the parallels are really, really disturbing to me. I I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, we talked, you know, several episodes ago, one of our first episodes, we talked about trying to find the balance between not being too alarmist and yes. also kind of raising the red flag when things are worrisome. Um, and this, this feels like one of those situations where, you know, it's easy, I think for Republicans or conservatives to say that, Oh, we're overreacting. They're actually enforcing the law and all of that, you know, they are enforcing the law. They are within their rights, but it feels, I mean, it, it really feels like this is, um, a, a contrived justification for the use of of you know federal police against the 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 protesters um, for political. I mean, we don't have hard proof that that's going on, but it sure feels that way. And again, there have been federal officers or federal troops that have been used like this in the past, but all, all pretty much always at the invitation of local officials, right? So when when local or state police don't, you know, essentially don't have the resources to to deal with a situation, they can reach out to the federal government. The the federal government doing this against the wishes of local um, officials is what really raises all sorts of alarm bells for me. And and again, the the unwillingness to to identify officers, um, the the use of the fact that these federal officers aren't dressed like law enforcement. They're dressed like military. They're wearing camo. There's, there's all sorts of stuff that's really worrisome about this from a, you know, just again, just from a principled point of view, flip it around. If it's, if it's conservative protesters, again, if it's, you know, second amendment people, you know, guns rights people, if it's the, I don't know, KKK, whoever groups that I would strongly disagree with, if the federal government is using essentially unmarked unidentified Minivans. agents to haul people away without, you know, it, it would, it would, it would be worrisome. Yeah. And we've seen, I think one of the, 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 some of the shots that have troubled people most are these, the, you know, these cars that show up, unmarked cars, minivans, you know, actually there was an incident in New York yesterday that's been getting a lot of attention where a minivan pulls out of nowhere, people jump out of the car, grab somebody. And, and there's a reason you have marked vehicles. There's a reason that you, you wear an insignia so that the people know what's going on. I mean, to take it to the international level, the third Geneva convention says in times of war, all soldiers need to wear insignia. So you know who you're fighting, right? It's just, it's a basic rule. And that the U.S. government would think it's okay to send out individuals in camouflage. And now they just have, I guess, police on there. But all of that is really, to your point, really troubling. And I would hope it would be troubling no matter which party was doing that. Uh, so yeah, I, I, we, we shouldn't be alarmist. That being said, I think there are some really, really concerning developments here, and it's useful to see how the rest of the world is watching this. Uh, Germany. So there was a, it was an article in Der Spiegel this week about what what was going on in the United States, and and one of the one of the articles was saying this feels like an experiment with fascism. Like that's kind of what's going on here, and they were drawing some parallels to other eras of fascism with what regimes do, and what they do is they send in these paramilitary forces in the hope of creating a confrontation. You want to create this sense of fear, which then enables you as the government to do more of it. So yeah, I mean, we don't want to overreact, but I think this there's enough here that we really should have a reaction. I, I think one of the things that is the most worrisome to me about it is the lack of conversation about it. Uh, it not not at the public level. I mean, there's lots of conversation, there's lots of news media coverage of it, but at the the governmental level that there's not and so we can we can talk a little bit about Bill Barr, but I mean, it feels like Bill Barr has sort of been unleashed to do whatever and there's not a whole lot of check or there's not many checks that are being put on him. This seems like the sort of thing that regardless of who the president is, there should be some level of debate, pushback, challenge from Congress and, and Democrats are, are pushing back. But there's not a whole lot from the from the president's party. 
Um, and, and I think that, you know, if a president were to do this, were to send out troops to say, we're going to protect, you know, one of the things the Department of Homeland Security does um, is protect federal buildings. We're going to deploy some federal troops or federal officers, I didn't say troops, federal officers um, to protect the federal courthouse in Portland. That would be, you know, fine. Um, that's that's within reason. But the sort of provocation, the pushing of it, all of that, you know, that that's where there should be other people in government saying, hold on, you know, wait a minute. And it shouldn't just be a handful of you know libertarians or it should be a, a collective response that this is problematic because, again, if you're okay with a Republican president doing it, it's, it's this sort of gradual enlargement of the president's power of the executive power that, you know, if it, if it grows today, that, that, you know, that transfers to another president down the, down the line and each sort of encroachment or expansion of presidential power leaves us in, in a more difficult place, I think. It, it makes it seem that, yeah, that this is okay what's happening. This is routine, and, and this is not routine at all. Yeah, and you're right. There has been very little pushback from the Republican Party. There have been some former uh, Republican officials who've criticized this. So Tom Ridge, who was the uh, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security initially. like he First was, one. Yeah, after 9-11. He has come out and said that he is deeply, deeply troubled by what's going on in Portland and that you know the U.S. troops should not or forces should not be used as a paramilitary force inside the United States. And I think that that says something. This feels, you know, in, in, you know, we study international politics and comparative politics. There's, you hear of this role of the interior minister in a lot of uh, authoritarian systems. And the, uh, the interior minister is the one who takes care of any trouble or any pushback within the government. And there've been a number of people of equating Bill Barr to playing the role of the interior minister right now. His job is to crack down on dissent. And it, it really feels like that's what's playing out in Portland. Yeah, I feel like uh, of all the, the um, you know, the ensemble, the cast of, of characters around Trump, the, all the people in his administration, there are some who will come out of this okay. There are some who are going to leave their time in the Trump administration. I, I don't think history will will uh, shine well on them. But I think Bill Barr is going to be sort of near the top of people who come out of this looking really bad. I, the, the, the extent, I mean, his testimony yesterday, I didn't get to see the whole thing before the, the house. I mean, some of the arguments he makes about, you know, justifying all of this, the use of, again, hauling people off in, in minivans and using, you know, tear gas, uh, because people are, you know, shining lasers at it. It's not that there's, you know, it's not that they're being 100%, you know, perfectly compliant, the protesters, but the, the, the justification that the, that the administration is using is so bizarre. And, and, and he's unwilling to acknowledge that they have, you know, he, he's a believer in the, the power of the presidency, the expansive power of the presidency in the, in the, um, and and he he really does seem like he's just doing the work. He might as well be a campaign official of the Trump administration. I mean, he he even acknowledged to some extent, you know, involving himself in the Roger Stone stuff. He you know was unwilling to to promise not to release controversial information in the lead up to the election next year, which is the thing that that you know caused so many problems last time around. He he's a person who was viewed as a serious person before he came into the Trump administration and. I, I'm I'm baffled and and really bothered by the way that he has he has handled things um, as attorney general. Because there will be a legacy to your earlier point. This will continue on. Future attorney generals will have to look and see whether they want to embrace the model of Bill Barr or push back. And I hope I hope this all collapses in a way where they say we just can't do this anymore. This is the, you know the attorney general is supposed to be a nonpartisan role, and obviously they're appointed by the president, so they're going to be reflect the party of that president. But you can you can put somebody in that position who's going to be the top cop in in an objective and empirical way, and it feels like Bill Barr has rejected all of that. Um, and unlike Trump, who's kind of a goofball and you don't expect seriousness out of him, Bill Barr is not. Like you said, Bill Barr has experience. He's been the attorney general before. He knows how to run the bureaucracy. And he's engaging in these steps that, you know, to me, it feels like what he's trying to do is he's trying to provoke, right? The intent of what's happening in, in Portland isn't to protect this building. It isn't to de-escalate. It's to provoke and then maybe argue for additional troops, additional force, right? The it's hard not to come away from this thinking that the goal here is to create fear. 
Uh, and there are political implications to that, right? By creating fear, you might, to, to the earlier point you made, you might get some political results from that. But all of this is really, really upsetting. There are, there are political implications in the sort of short-term kind of common usage of the word sense, meaning there are implications for the election and Trump support and Biden support and stuff like that. But from a political science perspective, there are political implications in a much bigger way, in, in sort of these institutional ways. So the... By doing this sort of stuff, you undermine or you you have the ability or the possibility of undermining faith in the justice system, in the rule of law in the United States. And when you uh, you know erode those norms, we've talked about norms a lot on here. When you erode those norms, or when you erode trust in institutions, that's it, you can build it back up, but it takes a while, right? I mean, just um, thinking about trust in general. If you had someone that was close to you that betrayed you, they could re-earn your trust, but it takes a long time. It's not like they just say, uh, you know, oh, whoops, I'm changing my policies, and and you're like good with them. It takes years of like learning to trust again, and. It's not just about the attorney general and the Department of Justice. I saw a, an article that I thought was really interesting that talked about, um, I think it was a, a monkey cage uh, from the Washington Post article. I'll see if I can find it and I'll put it on the website if I can. Um, that talked about how this undermines trust in the police, right? So the stuff that this isn't even local police, but protesters and the average citizen doesn't necessarily under, don't necessarily understand or see the fine lines between what's happening by, you know, from these federal officers and local police officers. And so faith in local police is, is undermined by this faith in the military is that you put, you put these officers out there in camo looking like military, the difference between, you know, federal troops and federal officers is, is not necessarily well understood. And so it's not just the rule of law and the attorney general, it's all of these other institutions that are getting kind of, muddled up in this and and that again that takes a long time to rebuild and, and the perception then is that these they've become politicized and if that's the case if there's if the system isn't fair you should do everything you can to win and manipulate that system and that's kind of what we're seeing right now it's not you know we're going to play through the political system knowing that if we lose we'll have a chance in the future you do everything you can um which i think speaks to what we should expect out of trump as the election comes nearer there's going to be more and more of tactics like this um you know chicago there's been a big deal about chicago is accepting some of this federal uh, support but doing so in a very different way than portland uh, and i'm glad the mayor pushed back on that uh but i wouldn't be surprised if trump uses this as a tactic to create fear uh to get the public on board do you do you think that works if we kind of think about the political angle uh is is it going to be successful will people become scared and then uh, you know drift to the law and order president so I think that several years ago, maybe even several months ago, I would have thought that it could be successful because it, it's not just law and order. It's kind of this urban rural divide, which plays out along this red blue divide. So, so the, the confrontation you have, you know, this is happening in cities. It's happening in liberal cities. It's happening in response to black lives matter protests. Those are all things that could invigorate a conservative base. And so, um, you know, he's, he's antagonizing groups that aren't going to vote for him anyway. And, you know, maybe energizing ones who, who might, um, so in the past I would have said yes, but I think that now I I'm really skeptical that it's going to work for a number of reasons. I think, the polls, again, we, we've talked about this before, that the level of support for Black Lives Matter, or at least um, opposition to using force against them. So, you know, when you look at polls, people say that, uh, you know, the president's job is to sort of listen to the, the, the complaints of the protesters as opposed to sort of brutally cracking down on them. I think after three years of Trump sort of eroding these norms, I think it's a less useful thing. I think the fact that it goes against some of these core Republican principles. So if you're a principled Republican who got on board with Trump, you know, reluctantly, and now he's using federal power against local, you know, uh, um, and state uh, groups, that's going to not sit well with you. You know, if you're a sort of a, a principled civil libertarian, you're going to have problems with it. So I, I'm, I'm less convinced. And the other problem with making a law and order argument is that he's the incumbent president. So he's arguing that, you know, the, the world is in chaos. You need me 
to fix that. And that has, that worked in the past when someone was running against an, an incumbent president. If we had a Democrat, if this was all happening under a Democratic president, then I think a Republican arguing for law and order and we're going to stop this nonsense and we're going to use federal officers to bring an end to it, it might be effective. But this is a world that is Donald Trump's world. And so arguing that, you know, if if he's going to stop it, why has he not done that yet? And so I think the creating chaos is an argument against your leadership, not for it. So for lots of different reasons, again, I, I would have thought yes, but all of the evidence over the last couple of months says that this is a losing strategy for him. And I think if you look at the uh, the 2018 midterms, he had a different enemy then. It was the, you know, the caravans that were invading the country. And he really tried to play that up in the weeks before the election. And it didn't work. I, I, I hope you're right. And I, I think you're probably right. I am afraid or I'm, 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 I'm fearful that there might be some groups who, you know, are, are pro-Black Lives Matters, but are more moderate about it. If, if chaos plays out, does that fear factor trump the moral argument? And I, I don't know. And I think you're right that he's so burned all those bridges, it's difficult to come back. Um, but fear works, right? And so I, I think I think it's going to be difficult for him. These ads that they're running now that are showing the streets in mayhem and saying, this is Biden's, your future this under is Biden. you're going to wake up to if you <laughs> right. elect Biden. Yeah. And I, I, you have to really suspend some disbelief to to kind of to say, oh yeah, that's right, because it is. This is Trump's American. This is what we're grappling with, and I think it's. I think he's going to put more accelerant on it. I think he's going to tie this to race and identity. I mean, he is going to play all of this together in kind of an ugly identity racial uh, politic. You know, politics. So I, I worry about all that. But I think you're right. At the end of the day, I think it's still it's not going to work. So to, to go back and, and add a little more, you know, clarity or nuance, I, I do think this approach will work with some people. But I think, you know, as a number of people have pointed out, he's preaching to the choir. So the people who this will work with are largely on board already. What he needs to do is win back suburban voters, um, suburban women. Um, and I'm less convinced that this will do that. If anything, I think, and you know, his, he may, what did he tweet about the suburban housewives of America or oh, something like that. he's so out of touch so with the voting <laughs> block that he's supposedly trying to win over. Um, and so I, that, whether it will be effective in that sense of, of actually creating a coalition, I, that's when I look at what Joe Biden is doing right now, um, it's not particularly sexy or exciting. He's building a coalition, right? He's reaching out to Bernie supporters. He's reaching out to moderate Republicans. Trump is not building any sort of coalition. He's doubling down on his base. And this, I don't think is going to bring, there will be some people who will be brought in by this, but it's hard to believe that people who are brought in by this approach weren't already a part of the Trump coalition. Now, so to, to this can be a good transition because this is where I also think some of the tactics of the protesters have been pretty, pretty brilliant, right? Or whether it was intentional or not, the wall of moms, right? When you have protesters, these, these skirmishes between federal officers and protesters, and then you bring out a bunch of right? Suburban women who are, it's not, you know, not all suburban women, but you bring a bunch of women out, moms who lock arms and stand between the protesters. And then what you get is video of federal officers, like shooting, hauling away, arresting women who I think for them, from the media perspective, don't, people don't perceive them as threats, right? The, 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 the person that Trump is trying to win over with a law and order argument looks at this and says, this is not the law and order that I want, right? This is what I see is me being attacked by federal agents, not me being protected by federal agents. And so I, I think in that sense, that undermines it as well. But we can talk, we should talk a little bit about the protester, you know, strategy and tactics and, 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 and kind of go down that road, I think, as well. Yeah, and there's some really interesting research in political science, international relations. So Erica Chenoweth, uh, who actually went to grad school with Phil and I, has written a lot about nonviolent uh, approaches to protest. And and her argument is essentially that nonviolence were, is way more effective than engaging in violence. And, and so there is this really interesting debate within the protesters in Portland and elsewhere about what is the role of violence. Um, and, and you're seeing an emerging voice to say we need to be careful about that violence, because what we see is that Trump, anytime a protest group, whether it's in Portland or anywhere around the world, uses even the, the little bit, a little bit of violence, the government then uses that as an excuse to crack down, right? So the government is almost looking for an act of violence to, to justify their, their pushback. Uh, so these protesters in 
in Portland are debating about what are the appropriate tactics, because as you noted, it's all a narrative, right? This is for the news. This is for creating this this argument. Who is who is wrong in this this debate? So it's it's a really fascinating issue. Yeah, I mean, it's a debate that's. I mean, this is a debate that was a part of the civil rights movement, right, in the '60s yeah. about what, the Martin Luther King versus the Malcolm X, and there's valid points to both sides, right? The idea that that I'm not going to stand by peacefully while federal agents come out and tear gas me and shoot me in the face with rubber bullets and all of this other stuff, like I'm not going to peacefully. This calls for violence because this is unacceptable. Versus, you're you're right. There's there's a and 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 the evidence is on the side that the peaceful protest. So to go back to the beginning, if Bill Barr's trying to uh, provoke in some way to try to make an argument for why more federal force is needed or that these these groups are dangerous, then any provocation plays into that narrative. If all that can if all that makes the news are walls of moms being hauled away into unmarked minivans, that's a hard narrative for the Trump administration to spin in their favor. It really kind of takes the air out of that out of that um argument. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I, but that's, that's the problem with these movements is that it can be 97% peaceful. Um, and one person picks up a brick and throws it at a, you know, at an agent or hauls a firework or, I mean, again, we're talking about, we're not talking about opening fire on federal agents. We're talking about these minor provocations, but even those, um, are, you know, they play into the, into that narrative. Well, and the other, other factor to think about here is there are, there are right-wing paramilitary groups who are infiltrating these protests movements engaging in violence just to elicit more conflict right so so if you're if you're a black lives matter protester in portland or elsewhere uh you could be peaceful but there might be somebody whose hope is to create violence is going to try to infiltrate that i don't know if we've seen, if viewers have seen but there's this video of the umbrella man in minnesota who went through there was a protest going on and he busted out all these windows and then that led to looting and more recently they've, they've learned that he is a he's a right-wing protester and his whole hope was to create chaos, create looting, uh, undermine what otherwise was a peaceful protest. So it's so difficult if you're trying to use nonviolence. Uh, the wall of moms is brilliant, right? I mean, it's such a it's it's such a good tactic to kind of show who is really the the initiator of violence. It's just it's kind of it's it's fascinating. It's also why this, again, these are, you know, this is a collective action problem, right? You have hundreds of thousands of people out protesting and you're trying to get them to all act, you know, as, as one. And it's virtually impossible um, to do. But it, to that extent, it's been pretty impressive the extent to which these protests have remained peaceful. I mean, it, yes. it's again, I don't want to, I don't want, I'm not trying to deny the fact that there have been, you know, incidents, but, but for the most part, it's been, it's been remarkably, uh, well contained, I guess. And, and that's a narrative that the Trump administration doesn't want, right? They don't want this to be all peaceful protesters pushing for to confront systemic racism and police abuse. They want the story, as we get closer to the election, to be about violence, anarchy, you know, uh, urban liberal cities, right? So they want to try to flip that narrative. And if the protesters continue to be savvy about this, it's going to be really, really difficult. And it's still, again, to, I just, I know we need to move on, but to go back to, for Trump to be making that argument about anarchy is is just a hard argument when you're the incumbent. Absolutely. So yeah, I think uh, to your point, I, I think history is going to be very, very hard on Bill Barr. He He's smart enough to know better. And it feels like he just is 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 causing long term damage to to the Department of Justice and the idea of you know objectivity in government. So yeah, all right, we should transition. So our second topic today, we're going to go international, and uh, we're going to explore recent developments in U.S. China relations. And let's start by saying these have not been good or positive developments. Uh, last Thursday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo delivered a blistering speech attacking China, declaring U.S. policy toward China. China should be based on the principle of distrust and verify. Going back to Ronald Reagan and trust and verify, he's going, he's taking another step and saying, we should distrust and verify. <laughs> he argued that the diplomatic efforts to engage China, first starting with President Richard Nixon, had failed and undermined U.S. interest. Pompeo stated that if we want freedom in the 21st century, quote, the old paradigm of blind engagement with China simply won't get it done, unquote. Earlier in the week, the State Department ordered China to shut down its Houston consulate, which prompted China to return the favor on Friday, ordering the U.S. to close one of its own consulates in China. Uh, The recent action taken by Pompeo gives one the sense that the Trump administration is doing everything they can to push the relationship into a full-blown Cold War. 
And it's therefore not surprising that China views these antagonistic efforts by the Trump administration as evidence that the United States was never going to accept China's rise. Phil, there's no question that China stands to alter the existing international order, yet I'm far from convinced that the actions by the Trump administration will prove effective in countering that rise. So let's let's dive in. Where where do you want to start? Um, there's, there's a lot to talk about. I, I think it makes sense to begin with an overall, I mean, let, let's start with a general picture of US Chinese engagement, and then let's kind of zoom in on on Trump's approach. So I, I do think there is there is a place. Um, and, and it is something we should be talking about, about whether or not engagement with China has succeeded. So th- I mean, this goes back 50 plus years, right? So this be- begins with Richard Nixon, who who announces this policy of engagement. Um, and the idea was essentially you had the communist China um, who was you know insulated, closed off. This is during the Cold War. And part of the idea was that by engaging with them, um, by reestablishing, we had cut relations with China after the, Chi- the, the communist revolution. The idea of reengaging with them was that we could sort of help bring them, usher them into the you know the 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 world order. Um, they could be moderated essentially by by um, by engagement. Um, so that began under Nixon. It, it further expanded under Clinton with with opening up of of trade. Um, and and again, it, it does feel like that for the most part, for that fifty years, there hasn't been much questioning of this conventional wisdom that that engagement with China will help moderate China. And I think it's worth stepping back and talking about whether or not that policy is actually you know succeeding or whether it has failed. And and so I think. Pompeo's point or Trump's point about that, about reevaluating our policies towards China is is fine. The um, the specifics and the context in which the Trump administration is doing this, I have a little bit more of a problem with. But I, I don't know. Should we start just by talking about engagement in general? Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Is it worth reconsidering our our relationship with China? Absolutely, right? And I think there's there should be a serious conversation about China's rise, what that means for the international system, and what that means for U.S. hegemony, right? The idea that the United States for the last 50 years has been the global superpower, dictated world events, and now we're seeing there's there's a shift in a balance of power. China is, is likely to rise and maybe challenge the United States. So all of those are really, really important conversations. Um, I, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the Trump administration is engaging in a serious review of that. Uh, I think there's more political than there is maybe strategic. But to, to echo a point you made earlier, this has been a, a bipartisan consensus that the United States should engage China economically. But there's also, this was also embraced by academia. Uh, so within international relations, the fields that we both embrace, there was this uh, assumption, not assumption, there was this, there was research that showed that as states engage economically, that economic interdependence will lead to democracy. Economic development will lead to democracy. So the more economically developed a state is, the more likely they are to embrace democracy. And there was a whole host of data to support that. And everybody just assumed that as China developed economic Economically, they, the pressure to democratize would was, would cause internal uh, change, and what happened? It didn't. Right? China's an outlier in that way, where they were able to get around this, and we in fact haven't seen any democratic reform. And you could argue China's more repressive now than they were maybe twenty years ago. So yeah, so there was both the foreign policy, but also there was a lot of a lot of good academic research to say that this is a sound approach to China. Well, and there, there's some, you know, there's some, I, I, not not super new, but in that line of research on the role of economics and 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 democracy, there's some evidence or emerging arguments that uh, uh, that it's not that that economic growth leads to democracy, but economic growth leads to stability. So, I mean, you can think about how the massive economic growth of China is, is one of the reasons why the Chinese communist government has been able to retain power because it's, it, it has been generally good for the Chinese people, as long as you're not, you know, a Uyghur or a political dissident or, or whatever. So, so part of it is that economic growth. And that's the, the other aspect of this is that, you know, there are comparisons when you talk about the rise of China and a new cold war, you're using this analogy or we, I'm, I, I don't mean you specifically, people who talk about it are using this analogy of, uh, you know, that we can hearken back to the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But it's not exactly the same. It's not anything the same, right? That there's This is uh, about political power, but it's also about economic power. 
Um, China is, you know, this massive trading partner with the U.S. We are intertwined economically in ways that we never were with the Soviet Union. And so it's not just as simple as challenging them politically. It's it, their economic implications to it. So it's, it's really complicated. Um, but I do think it's, it's important to revisit it, especially with, you know, the, it's not even emerging, the well-established fact of uh, not just, uh, you know, political prisoners, but now the, the, what is, I would argue pretty clearly a genocide against Uyghurs in, in, in China. So, um, I don't know, but has it, I guess the other part of me is, uh, you can say that we should reconsider this policy moving forward. That's different from saying that it hasn't worked. I mean, there's also arguments that, that engagement has in fact moderated China or brought them more into the West. So the, the China we have today is in fact, much better and much mo more moderate than what it would have been if they had been sort of ostracized. I, I don't, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's important that you step back and say, okay, what is the threat posed by China? So let's, let's be honest about China's rise, their power. There's no question that their human rights record internally is abysmal. It's, it's terrible and they should be held account for that. At the same time, let's think about what has China done internationally? Have they been a force of disorder or order? Well, let's think about the United States, uh, you know, comparing the United States and, and China over the last 15, 20 years. Has China invaded any countries, toppled any regimes? No. Has the United States done that? Yes, right? So when you think about a force for stability, I think it's hard for the United States to say that China poses this this threat to the system, whereas, I mean, the United States has caused more chaos and disorder than China has. China has not gone to war. Uh, they hold themselves as a responsible international actor. Now, are they flexing their muscles in the South China Sea? Absolutely, right? Are the, you know, is their nine dash line BS? I mean, are they trying to, of course it is, right? I mean, they are, they are doing essentially what the United States did with the Monroe Doctrine to say, this is all of ours. We're going to play realism, power politics, and try to grab all those resources, right? So it's a mixed bag when you think about what they're up to. But that doesn't mean we can't have an honest assessment of what that threat poses to the United States and then come up with a sound policy to address that. And I, it just feels like this idea that suddenly we're going to revert to some kind of Cold War approach, which, I, again, doesn't even make I don't even know what that looks like. So let's go. Let's talk about the specifics of that. Then, So let's talk about the Trump administration's approach here, because uh, if that is the case, so even if you buy into if you if you agree with Pompeo, if you think that this is this has failed, we need to alter our, our course. Um, China needs to be in some way contained the, because of human rights violations, because of expansionist tendencies, because of, you know, a, a, a China, a, a a world system dominated by China as it is currently governed. Um, so this is not about, you know, China in general. It's about the Chinese government. A, a world government dominated by or a world system dominated by the Chinese government is not one the U.S. wants, right? It's a different view of human rights. It's a different view of stability, all sorts of stuff. So let's say we should be concerned and we need to do something about it. The Which political I think science literature. All, all are ahead. true, right? I think we should. I think those are yeah. all real, legitimate concerns that should be driving policymakers. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the problem is that if we go back to sort of international relations literature about what should be done or how you how you the lessons learned from the past hundred years about how you would do this, um, the tools that the U.S. would use to contain, constrain, confine all of that, um, the, the, the growth of China have been essentially destroyed by, I shouldn't say destroyed, they've been eroded by the Trump administration. So what the, the way to do it would be through this coalition of you know, Western liberal, you know, pro-human rights uh, countries throughout, you know, Europe, throughout Asia, you know, South Korea, Japan, you know, all of our traditional allies. And, and those are the allies, the, the sort of international order, the, the, you know, NATO and the UN and economic alliances. Those are the things those tools are what would be useful. And those are the things that Trump has spent three and a half years attacking. Absolutely. You can think of very specific examples, starting with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So Trump campaigned on saying we need to get out of this trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have created a basically a, a free trade agreement with all of these Pacific nations. Think... Uh, 
uh, NAFTA, but extended all the way around Pacific. And China was not part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that would have been a really powerful economic tool to put pressure on China. So one of the biggest complaints is is their economic policy, the you know lack of uh, respect for in, uh, intellectual property, uh, the way they, they manipulate their their economy at times. Like this would have been a really powerful way to confront them. You mentioned alliances, not only Asian alliances, but also European alliances. Getting rid of NATO, having a collective voice to push back against China would have made all the difference. The United States has started to push back, but everything is unilateral. We're doing everything alone. It's so much more difficult to do that. And what China does is they're trying to pick off our former allies. They're trying to build these relationships with countries so the U.S. cannot speak with a collective voice. One more, and then I'll shut up. But soft power. I mean, think about the, the degree to which... You know, the United States had this incredible soft power. People believed in the system, economics, politics, all of that. And now suddenly the U.S. doesn't have the same element of soft power. There was a poll that came out this week uh, looking at uh, some of the major powers, the United States, Germany, China, and Russia, and who is seen as the leader of the free world. And the poll said Germany, right? The The international system is now looking to Germany, not the United States. So, so I think there are some really clear policy agendas that the administration is, like you said, disregarded uh, and makes it its job much more difficult. Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a number. Of, well, first of all, my neighbor has decided to mow her grass while we're <laughs> recording a podcast, so I apologize for that. But uh, yeah, a couple of ideas that come out of international relations that, that kind of build off of what you talk about. When I, you know, when I teach my intro international relations course, we talk a lot about rationality because, you know, international relations, people assume that countries are rational and, and they are. But there's this really important distinction between short term rationality and long term rationality. Meaning the the thing that is smartest right now in this moment, it, it might be the smartest thing right now, but the long-term consequences, you know, if you if you think about what are the implications for this three years, four years, five years down the road, and, and I see that rampant throughout the Trump administration. They have made decisions regarding European allies on trade policy and all sorts of other things that might make sense in this particular moment. I think about NATO funding, right, in which, you know, we're upset about allies not funding their military enough. The point might have been valid in that moment, but the long-term cost of alienating those allies and, and sort of decreasing the strength of the collective voice of NATO, this is where you start to pay those prices. And so thinking about the short-term versus the long-term benefits are, 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 is, is how that plays off. The other part of, of this that comes up in talking about foreign policy and international relations, again, is that consistency is really important because the, the messages you send um, are other countries are trying to interpret what the U.S. is doing or how they how they view it. You know, they're trying to predict how the U.S. is going to behave about certain things. And the Trump administration has been uh, nothing if not inconsistent, right? And you can see that even with China policy, whether it's, uh, you know, we flip back and forth in the news between Trump putting increasing, you know, uh, um, uh, tariffs on Chinese products, launching trade wars on one hand. On the other hand, reports that Trump has told the Chinese government that he doesn't have a problem with con- with the, the Uyghur concentration camps. Oh, hypocrisy, um, yeah. Reports that, you know, he, he wants to make trade agreements that will help him in the, that he wants to strike these deals with China that will be beneficial to him. So if you're China and you're trying to figure out U.S. policy, you're trying to figure out like how to negotiate this relationship, that's really hard to do. So again, lots of different elements of this that are problematic for this relationship and, and create um, real challenges for the U S to put together a, a coherent, either national or international response to the growth of China. There was a lot of really good stuff in there, Barker. <laughs> I was writing stuff down as you were talking. I, I think you're, you're right. And, and the other thing is it's going to make it incredibly difficult for the next administration. Let's say that Biden wins to come in and reverse course and fix this. And I think that's part of the intent of the Trump administration is let's do this quickly. Let's push this to a point where the future administration cannot reverse course. Uh, and that's really, really dangerous. Uh, the The Cold War analogy is useful in the sense, let's look back and say, what are some of the lessons of the Cold War? You know, was the U.S. better off when we were aggressive and confrontational with the Soviet Union? Or did we see better results when we engaged? And and the, I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming that engagement produced better outcomes than confrontation. So the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, you think about, was it, was it the aggressive confrontation? Or was it the diplomacy at the end that saved us? Obviously, the engagement mattered. Even the end of the Cold War was 
not Reagan the Hawk, who was you know talking about threatening uh, the Soviet Union with increased nuclear weapons. It was his relationship with Gorbachev, the bonds that they built. Uh, that engagement allowed these two countries to get out of this crisis without going to war. So I, I think the the Cold War is really really useful, and it it very much feels like that. The Trump administration is trying to echo Truman, you know, those early stages of the Truman doctrine that this is, you know, a battle of ideology. And, you know, I, I feel like there's some real danger to that that overheated rhetoric. Yeah, to go back to the the sort of long term, short term. So to use the Cold War analogy again, which I think is is I think it's useful, but you have to be cautious about it because this is different. Like we said before, this is different from the rise of the Soviet Union. But in a long-term, short-term strategy kind of way, the Cold War was full of short-term losses, right? I mean, the, the way that the U.S. you know emerges the victor from the Cold War is by maintaining this very long-term patience that that we're going to contain, and and we might lose today. But the idea is that in the long run, over you know decades, um, what will happen is that the Soviet Union will have to reform. And so I, I think that doesn't mean that we should be engaging with China, but it means that we can't interpret every single action as you know, requiring a full-fledged response right now. Some of it is that you know we're going to work with our allies, we're going to continue to pressure them on human rights, and sometimes that pressure won't bring about the immediate results we want. But the long-term response is that 20, 30, 40 years from now, China, you know, a, a commun a repressive communist regime in China is going to eventually, you know, have to to adjust. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's naive, right? There, maybe that's where people are, are starting to abandon that idea. I'm, I'm more convinced that in the long run, a, a country with, you know, a quarter of the world's population in growing prosperity is going to want reforms. Um, the government's not going to be able to maintain the, the system they have in, in place um, right now. That doesn't mean that we have to continue to engage with their government. We can put pressure and all sorts of other things, but it has to be this, this patient long-term strategy. And it doesn't feel like there's any long-term strategy right now from the Trump administration. Something like a containment strategy that was pursued consistently throughout the Cold War by different administrations. They, they, they did it uniquely, but there was this one overarching approach. Yeah, I, I think there's an assumption in, in U.S. foreign policy that the United States can just change other states' behavior. And the reality is you, you can't do that. The United States can't tell China this is what's going to happen. You can put pressure, can and should put pressure on them uh, to try to moderate where they can. But the idea that the United States just can dictate to China, is it's, it's silly. Um, yeah. The, the economics part of this is really fascinating to me because our economy, because part of our approach to engagement has been to deeply entangle ourselves with the, with the Chinese economy, um, which is I think partly the effective, right? And that it's partly what's brought China into the, the greater global community, but it's also what really binds us right now. It limits our ability to, to respond and be critical of, uh, you know, human rights violations and whatnot because of, because of the, you know, the economic power that China has over. I, I do think in the context of all of this, as we talk about great power politics and, and balance of power and the, you know, analogies to the cold war, from a military standpoint, from an economic standpoint, all of this, China is clearly a rising power. But I think there's a tendency to be, to view China as sort of, uh, I don't know, coming close to the to the U.S. and like they're quickly approaching the U.S. in power, and that's not the case, right? China is without a doubt powerful. Arguably, the you know you could argue that it's the second most powerful country in the world potentially, but that gap is still really big, and and. I don't know, the longer we wait to engage on some of these issues or to pressure China, the harder it becomes. But but it's also why it's hard to respond now, because we've spent 40 years, you know, be, becoming so entwined. I, I You know, I, it's easy to a country, again, the, the Cold War analogy, the Soviet Union, the, the entanglements were minor. Um, economics, we could put sanctions on Russia, we could do all sorts of other things that didn't deeply affect us at home. The, the fact that some of the economic limitations that might be required to, to, to reform China or whatever, uh, they have, you know, implications at the local Walmart in ways that, Absolutely. that, are, that are more difficult as well. Well, and that's why you're going to see some pressure from corporate America, from Wall Street on the Trump administration not to push this too aggressively because th that entanglement. So Trump talks about wanting to decouple from China. That is not easy to do. And the American public is not open to that. So it's, it's likely that we're going to 
see both Biden and Trump try to be tough on China, but there are limitations to that. And there's part of me that thinks Biden could make a really powerful argument to say, hey, I'm going to try to moderate uh, China's behavior, but I'm also going to engage in ways that are going to be productive and useful for the U.S. economy. So uh, let's play make-believe for a second. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to put you in a position that I would never want to be in. <laughs> this is one of those situations where I'm glad I don't have to make yeah. these decisions because it's so complicated. But let's let's pretend that, that Joe Biden wins um, in a few months. And when he's putting together his staff, he calls you and asks for, you know, your opinion or, your, you know, what policies should the U.S. pursue regarding China? So you're trying to sort of recreate a policy following, you know, both 50 years of engagement, which might be problematic, but also this sort of inconsistency consistent period of of the Trump administration you 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 don't want to ignore you know human rights violations all sorts of other, China it's not just human rights violations China does not play fair economically right they're not a free trade partner really um, what what do you do how do you move forward with this what's the policy approach for the US how do you start to rebuild an approach that might be beneficial not just to the US but to sort of you know international stability and order sure I think a couple things. One, you focus internally and you say, let's make the United States a model for the rest of the world to look at, right? So getting our house in order, it sounds like it's just domestic politics, but it makes a, it matters a lot internationally. So making the United States a, a better democracy, a more fair democracy, a more reasonable uh, global player, all of that stuff matters. And then I reach out to allies. I, you know, I, I, re, I go back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I reach out to Europe. I, I think there are a lot of countries in the Pacific who are looking for U.S. leadership, who are looking for a relationship with the United States that, to your point, they can trust will be there over the long term. And I begin that process. It's not going to happen overnight. Our State Department has been gutted. We've, we've gotten rid of a lot of really, really good people. But you begin that process to say the United States will once again be the central actor here. And I, I think that's important. It can be done, but it's not something that's going to happen in four years. And that's that's the what's so sad about what Pompeo and Trump have done to U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. If they called me and asked, I'd say call Bill Buck. <laughs> That's always always so, good advice. <laughs> so we've we've dealt with some really light topics. <laughs> yes. Should we should we deal with something serious? Yeah, let's ra- wrap up with some conspiracy theories. All right. So finally to wrap up, we thought it would be necessary to address the latest COVID conspiracy theory to go viral. Phil, can you believe President Trump and his son Don Jr. would be involved in spreading a COVID conspiracy theory? No. 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 Okay. All right. So on Monday night, President Trump uh, most certainly was retweeting multiple accounts that shared a video of a Houston doctor named Stella Emanuel who claimed that Hydro, hi, hi, have such hydroxychloroquine. A, yeah, it's so hard to say. Zinc and this is, zip, this is why you're not a medical doctor. I know. You yeah, the stuff. <laughs> so that that if you combine those ingredients together, it was a cure for the coronavirus. Uh, in the video, Dr. Emanuel also claims that you don't need to wear a mask; they're totally unnecessary. Uh, Twitter responded by suspending or restricting the Twitter accounts of those spreading the false uh, video, including Don Jr.'s. Uh, you won't be surprised to learn that Dr. Emanuel has a history of bizarre medical claims including the assertion that fibroid and cysts are caused by having sex with demons in dreams True. and that yeah alien dna is being used in medical treatments wow i mean this is out there so youtube twitter and eventually facebook took down the video but not after it went, it went viral largely because of the help provided by president trump and don jr phil this is a doozy uh don jr has claimed that this is quote further proof that big tech is intent on killing free expression online and pr- part of a broader effort to stifle rep- Republican voices. That's that's a reasonable take, right? <laughs> yeah, there there <laughs> There's so many things that you you left out the fact that she also apparently believes that lizard people are involved in government in some way. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. The yeah. classic lizard people <laughs> argument. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the, so point number one is that people you, you got to make sure that the stuff you're li- the people you're listening to online are, are real people. I mean, this is a real person, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the the, the prolifer- proliferation of sort of conspiracy theories, the politicization of yeah. all of this. That this would be even a controversial thing that a doctor basically saying something that you know that masks aren't useful or aren't helpful. Um, that this would be, you know, a question of, I, I, I mean, I suppose it is a question of free speech, but the conflating of social media platforms and, and all of these other things yeah. and expertise. The, the, the real problem I have with all of this is that you have national leaders that are 
pushing these things clearly for no other reason than a political um, argument, right? That it's not, the, the idea isn't that you have people who are sitting down trying to figure out what's the best policy, what's the most effective way to combat this, you know, the, this pandemic. And I'm going to elevate those voices. It's, I'm just going to find anyone who supports my view and I'm going to elevate them. And that's, then you end up with lizard people yes. on the news. And the important word is there anyone, right? There was no background. It used to be that presidents were careful about who they would elevate. This last week and a half, there's been discussion about a new tone out of the president, that he was more serious. He's back to his briefings, but he's trying to be more professional all about it. He's wearing a mask. Um, you know, he's doing everything Once. right. Right, right. Then he does this. You know, he retweets this this terrible conspiracy theory, and it undermines it all. It suggests that there's no new tone. The president continues to believe that masks are unnecessary, uh, that, you know, that these miracle drugs will save everything. It's, it, it used to be that there's always been conspiracy theories, right? You can go back through the history of the United States. They've always been there, but they were on the margins. And you kind of knew that they were on the margins. And now when you have a president who peddles in conspiracy theories, it's it's really, really dangerous. I mean, it's it's sort of comical when you read this, like, no, the president really do, didn't do that, right? No lizard people tweets, but... He is. And there are people who will listen to this and say, see, a lot of the, people. yes, the president is right. You know, I don't need to wear a mask. Uh, these these drugs are great. I mean, it, it is it's it's irresponsible. It's unbelievable that it, this is this is happening. Well, I mean, the 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 fact that it that he can tweet something like this out and it has such a big impact is all the evidence you need that it matters what the president tweets out. Right. I mean, in a time where, you know, we talked at the beginning of this and we were talking before we started about back to school plans, both at our colleges, at our kids schools, at, you know, workplaces and, and all these different places. And and this the, the, the difficulty with coming up with a sound policy in the first place is hard. And then you stir in stuff like this, which has an impact on people. So, you know, people who really believe this, who are fully on board and partisan and all of that other stuff are jumping in that this is, you know, this is all a, a conspiracy that I shouldn't have to wear a mask. And so how do you then put forth an effective policy that is dependent on people wearing masks, which is the one thing, like the most effective thing that can be done, all the science says. So, you know, you've immediately undermined any any way to actually move forward on this. We've talked in the past about the death of expertise, uh, you know, the idea that we can, that anybody who's got uh, knowledge, like uh, Fauci, you know, that, that we shouldn't look to them anymore. And you've seen Republican policymakers saying that, you know, some within the Trump administration. And here's another example where they find a doctor who clearly should not be a doctor. Right. The, I, I would not feel comfortable <laughs> going to this doctor for my annual exam. But yet the president is elevating this person as, as an expert, as somebody we should listen to. He was asked about it at the press conference yesterday. And, he's, you know, he, he distanced himself a little bit, but also said it's really important to hear all voices. No, it's not important to hear all voices. If you're talking about lizard people, if you're talking about aliens, you've disqualified yourself from COVID conversations, right? And right. I don't know. I just... The, the I, brief know. effort it takes to actually follow... like. Something that every citizen should be doing is, I, you know, I see this video, they're saying something, I should, you know, do a quick Google search and see if this person is actually crazy or not. Um, we should all be doing that. But certainly the president of the United States should be doing that. And you just feel like all he's doing is he sees a video that supports a stance he's taken and he hits retweet. He does, you know, what, uh, you know, what I probably often do. I Even I, like when I retweet, try to think about like, oh, do I actually know this person? And uh, he's not doing any of that. Like it's, and, and to go back to what you said before conspiracy theories are are they're they're human right they're human nature and and there's lots of evidence about where conspiracy theories come from this is a situation that is ripe for them and that the world feels out of control and you want something that seems chaotic to have a simple cause. And so conspiracy theories emerge out of that, right? So you think of others, the Kennedy assassination, it seems for something just random, for some random person to have assassinated Kennedy seems, that doesn't seem right. Like this is a significant event. It needs a significant explanation. And so it can't just be some wacko. It has to be that there was a government plot or whatever. And so this is a huge event. It's a significant event and it should have a significant explanation, not just, boy, it's really crappy that that virus mutated out of bats and now is you know, killing hundreds of thousands of people. 
And so it's a situation that is, is cater is perfect for creating conspiracy theories. Um, but as you said, in the past leaders world, you know, elected leaders, one of the things they did was to try to reassure people not to say that, yep, that crazy thing you're imagining is true, but instead to say, no, that makes, you know, I understand that you want the world to make sense, but here's what all the science says. And here's what we have to do. It's not fun. It's not easy, but here's how, and, and Trump has, he just doesn't have a desire to to lead, to govern, right? He wants to be popular. He wants to push his 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 opinion. It's really dangerous at this at this point in particular. It, it undermines this idea that there's objective reality out there, and uh, yeah, and it, it means any any viewpoint, any perspective, even somebody who's so far out there and clearly unqualified should be on the same platform as somebody as as Fauci. I mean, President Trump could go talk to Anthony Fauci about this. He could run this tweet by and say, "Hey, is is this doctor onto something?" Or he could just retweet it, and he he chooses to use that platform to to question truth so yeah. running it by fauci is what the lizard people want <laughs> that's, <Phil. right. laughs> that's a perfect place to wrap up so we should <clears throat> this is really fun phil we should uh we should talk about lizard people more often so yes we should <laughs> you want to so if you've, yeah. if you've enjoyed it yeah please please like us uh rate us on uh on the the uh, apple podcast and spotify and all of that stuff go to our our website thepoliticslab.com um, like us on Facebook at the Politics Lab and on tw- follow us on Twitter at Politics Lab Pod, and, and we will talk to you all next Wednesday when we're back with who knows what will happen in the next seven days. See you next week, Bill. Bye, Bill.